Have you ever seen a firefly before? I remember years ago, I went out with my friend. He lived in Winsboro, South Carolina, and we stayed overnight in his little um, area, and we would fish. And one night, I went out on his docks, and I saw it was like this picture. The sky lit up with all these fireflies. And if you ever look at the back of a firefly, you'll notice they have like a light bulb, and it lights up. Now, we understand what's going on here. God created them, but scientifically, what causes them to light up? We know it's not Darwinian evolution. So I looked up scientifically what happens in reference to these fireflies, and here's what they said. Fireflies produce a chemical reaction inside their bodies that allows them to light up. This type of light production is called bioluminescence. Here's the technicality. When oxygen combines with calcium, adenosine, triphosphate, and the chemical luciferin, in the presence of bioluminescent enzyme, light is produced. Unlike a light bulb, which produces a lot of heat, in addition to light, a firefly's light is cold light without a lot of energy being lost as heat. And this is what I found fascinating. This is necessary because if a firefly's light-producing organ got as hot as a light bulb, the firefly would not survive the experience. Now listen, only a god who's all-wise and all-powerful could design a firefly to do that and not be consumed by the chemical reaction. Well, you know, the Bible says that you and I are spiritual fireflies. The Bible calls us children of the light. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, when you came to Christ, you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And he says, because you are children of light, act like children of light. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we conclude our book study in 1 Thessalonians 5. Turn there. We're going to be looking at the theme of children of the light. Not children of the darkness, but children of the light. As John said, next week we're going to go into 2 Thessalonians, but for this morning we're going to look at chapter 5. Now the key to this chapter is in verse 5. This is really the verse that unlocks the chapter. He says to the Thessalonians and to you and I, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day, or daughters of light, daughters of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. And so he identifies these Christians as being sons and daughters of the light, and he contrasts them with non-believers. You got to remember in the Bible, light and darkness are used as metaphors. Light represents being in the kingdom of light. It represents being born again. It represents being holy, whereas darkness represents being lost, being under Satan's kingdom, and not understanding the truth of God. And so he says to the Thessalonians, because you've embraced Christ, you are children of the light. Now the question is, what are the characteristics of a child of the light? Because as we sang in the song earlier, I am a child of God. If we are children of God, we should represent our Father. I mean, after all, most kids reflect their parents, not only physically, but in terms of their personalities. You see this with your children. You see characteristics. Well, what are the characteristics that should reflect children of the light? Well, let me share them with you this morning. There are three of them. First of all, a child of light is prepared for the rapture. A child of light is prepared for the rapture. Notice, if you will, verse 1 and on. He says to the Thessalonians, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. They wanted to find out about when was the day of the Lord going to happen, just like today. When is the Lord coming back? And we set dates. 
He says, listen, I don't need to say anything to you about that. He says in verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I'm not giving you a date, but just know that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief unexpectedly, harmfully, while they, that is non-believers, are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But notice the contrast in verse 4, but you. See, that's the world. Those are people that are going to go through the day of the Lord. He says in verse 4, but you Christians are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Now, you'll notice the diagram up on the screen. In verse 1, he mentions this Greek phrase, peri-day. And basically what that means is Paul is now changing the subject. He uses this throughout 1 Corinthians, and Paul is shifting topics. Now, remember in chapter 4, he talked about the rapture, believers being taken out before the tribulation. He refers to them as we, that is Christians, we are children of the light, and before the seven-year tribulation hits this earth, you and I are going to be taken out of this earth, and then the tribulation is going to happen. And then he goes to chapter 5, and he changes the subject matter, and this is very important, because in chapter 5, he basically talks about what he calls there the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a technical term. It's used in the Old Testament, and obviously it refers to God's wrath, but it's a day when God is going to pour out his judgment upon the earth during the seven-year tribulation. And so notice the chronology. In chapter 4, believers are taken out in the rapture, prior to the tribulation, and then in chapter 5, he starts talking about the tribulation, the day of the Lord, and the Thessalonians were curious. They wanted to know the specifics of the day of the Lord, and Paul says, look, I don't need to give you all those specifics. Just know that the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. Now, at this point, the book of Revelation had been written. John is going to give us more details about the day of the Lord. If you'll notice the diagram up on the screen, this one will give you a better visual. You'll notice this is the seven-year tribulation called the day of the Lord. It's divided into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. God's going to pour out, according to the book of Revelation, the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. This is the middle of the tribulation. Christ comes back. But notice the children of the darkness in 1 Thessalonians 5, they're going to go through this if they don't know Christ. Notice the children of the light they're going to be raptured out before this tribulation happens, and the Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. Once he signs that peace treaty with Israel that lasts the first three and a half years, that's when the tribulation is going to start, when he signs that peace treaty. And Paul says here, everyone's going to be saying peace and safety. See, they're going to say peace and safety. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to make a pact with Israel And basically, he's going to be Israel's protector. And during probably the first three and a half years, he's going to allow religion to coexist. And what's going to happen at the midpoint, as you know, is he's going to demand that the world worship him. And so what Paul is doing is he's he's contrasting the children of light with the children of the darkness. The children of the light in chapter 4 are taken out before the tribulation. In chapter 5, the children of the darkness they're going through the tribulation, and what he says is, you're not like the children of the darkness. 
I'm not going to give you details and dates and times and epics, but what I am going to do is say he's coming like a thief in the night. And he says, if you and I are going to be ready for the rapture, because we're not going to be here for the day of the Lord. That's the point of the passage in chapter 5. We are not like the children of darkness. The question is, how can, be, how can we be rapture ready? Well, he gives us four quick things here to help us to be rapture ready. First of all, he says we need to wake up. We need to wake up. Notice, if you will, verse 4. He says, but you, contrasting with the non-believers, children of the darkness, but you, brethren, are not in the darkness. You're not lost. That that day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And notice what he says in verse 6. So let us not sleep. He's not talking about physical sleep here. He's talking about being spiritually asleep. Don't sleep as others do, as non-believers, but let us be alert and let us be sober. And then in verse 8 he says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. Now here he's not talking about literal drunkenness. He's talking about being sober in terms of being spiritually awake. In other words, don't live perpetually off spiritual Benadryl. Many Christians in the American church are in a spiritual stupor. They're asleep spiritually. Satan has sung them a spiritual lullaby and has put them to sleep spiritually. That's why the American church is not making an impact on the world. Why? Because we are intoxicated with the world. We are intoxicated with materialism. And what happens is we're asleep spiritually. And what he's saying is you got to wake up spiritually. Be alert to what's going on. Have your priorities right in your Christian life. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be awake. I didn't do well in high school, and it's to my loss that I didn't study in high school. Now that I'm older and I look back, I wish I would have taken my studies seriously. Well, my senior year, I was going to fail English, and if I didn't pass English, I wasn't going to graduate. And so my English teacher called my mom and said, you know what, your son needs to get his lower hemisphere in gear so that he can pass English. And uh, my mom got on to me. My mom never got on to me with my studies. But she said, you need to get in your room and you need to study. And you're not leaving your room until you study. My mom was Middle Eastern. She was very firm. And so I went into the room to study. Well, while I was studying, guess what I did? I was on my knees, you know, I fell asleep. My mom comes by the room and she looks at me and she yells, Michael, she says, wake up. And I jumped up. And you know, that's what the Bible calls Christians who are asleep spiritually to wake up from their spiritual stupor. And you know what that means? It means don't just come to church when it's convenient. Don't just be a Sunday Christian. You got to get involved. You got to have your priorities right. You got to seek first the kingdom of God. And so the first thing he says, if we're going to be rapture ready, is we need to wake up. Secondly, we need to clean up. Notice what he says in verse 7. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, he's not just highlighting drunkenness. Obviously, this would be representative of any type of sin. He says in verse 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. You see there, he's talking about cleaning up your life. It's not enough just to wake up spiritually, but you know what you got to do? You got to clean up your life. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about direction. He's saying you got to deal with sin in your life. We all battle it. We all are going to fail. None of us are perfectly sanctified, but to live a clean life means that I'm dealing with sin in my life and I'm walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. This weekend, as I mentioned, I went to the prison 
I flew out there to Louisville, Kentucky. Steve Cromer in our church owns a jet, so he flew me out there. It's about a two and a half hour flight. Went to the prison. Yesterday, we shifted to another prison. And while I was there, a guy came up to me while I was watching the game. He said, hey, let me tell you my testimony. He said, I've murdered two people. And he says, I dealt drugs. I was a thief. And he says, I was at the end of my rope. And he says, I was about to kill myself while I was in prison. And a ministry showed up and gave these Christmas bags to all of us. And when I looked in the Christmas bag, there was a candy cane that explained the gospel. He says, I read it. And he says, I looked up to God and he said, God, I'm a murderer. I'm a thief. I've done all these bad things. I deal drugs. In fact, he told me he was well known in the prison and a lot of prisoners owed him money. He would sell them knives in the prison. He said, furthermore, he says, I had men that were my homosexual lovers. He said, so I cried out to God and I said, God, what can you do with me? I'm a lost cause. And he said, God said to him in his heart, come as you are. And so he cried out to God and he said, God, save me. And he said, God, transform my life immediately. He says, I went to all the people that owed me money and I told them, you don't owe me money anymore. He says, I got rid of the knives that I was selling. He said, I stopped the drugs. And he said, I went to my homosexual lover and said, look, here's what Jesus has done for me. And he said, I led that homosexual lover to Christ. You know what he did when he got saved? He cleaned up his life. Is it a battle? Sure, it's a battle. He's in prison, and he said, the best of all is I was supposed to be in prison for life. He said, the parole board is going to let me out in a couple of years. He said, God has truly blessed my life. And I'll tell you what, you could tell he was excited, and he was sharing Christ with other people. You see, God wants us to clean up our life, not perfectly, but he wants us to live in obedience. We blow it all the time but you deal with sin. And so if you want to be rapture ready, you got to wake up, you got to clean up. Thirdly, you got to dress up. Notice if you will, verse eight, but since we are of the day, since you're a born again believer, you know the truth, you're in the light, let us be sober, spiritually sober, know your priorities. And notice the dressing up here, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here he's using a soldier metaphor, and he's saying you need to put on your armor because we are in a spiritual battle. You see, we can't fight the spiritual battle spiritually naked. And he uses three characteristics, the three trifecta that Paul gives, faith, hope, and love. And he's saying you need to walk with God, you need to love others, and you need to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. That is your hope. And he says every day when you get up, you got to walk in your spiritual closet, and you're going to have two areas there. You got the clothes of the world, and you got the clothes of the flesh. And you make a decision, and so do I every day. If I'm going to dress up and I'm going to put on faith, hope, and love, Ephesians 6 says the armor of God. Again, it's a metaphor. We've got to be prepared for battle because we are in a battle, and too many Christians are spiritually naked. I was reading this week about a man who was in a Moscow, in the Moscow airport. And he stripped naked. And of course, when you watch the video, they, you know, cover his private parts. But he's literally in the line of the security line. And he's naked there, and I'm watching the bystanders, and they're, they're looking at him going like, what is this guy doing? And I'm thinking to myself, five minutes have gone by, and nobody has accosted this guy. So finally, they arrest him. They tie him down. They handcuff him. And they asked him, why did you strip your clothes off? He wasn't drunk. He wasn't high. Here is what he said, quote, clothing impairs the aerodynamics of the body. 
I fly more agilely when I am undressed, end quote. Well, obviously, the guy's one fry short of a happy meal. Something's going on there. But you know, a lot of Christians, we're not dressed for battle. We're spiritually naked. And that's not a literal thing that we dress up. It means how you live your life. And so if you want to be rapture ready as a child of light, you got to wake up, you got to clean up, you got to dress up, and finally you got to look up. Notice what he says here in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for temporal wrath or eternal wrath. We're not going through the tribulation. But God has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us in verse 10. That's the whole reason why we're not going through the wrath, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. You see, we need to look up. Why? Because Jesus is going to take us out of the tribulation, and we need to anticipate that. There are no signs that need to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. It is a signless event. On the other hand, the second coming, which happens after the tribulation, Jesus said in Matthew 24 and other passages, there are signs that will precede his coming. But when it comes to the rapture, it is an imminent event. It can happen at any moment. And so he says, look, Jesus hasn't destined us for wrath, eternal wrath or the tribulation wrath. We are going to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, whether we're dead or whether we're alive. And so we need to look up. I was reading about a girl who grew up in California, and she said her dad had two requirements for her and her siblings. Whenever they went to bed, they had to always have a flashlight and a pair of shoes under their bed. As you know, California is earthquake prone. And so the father said, because obviously they're going to ask, why do we need to do this? He said, when an earthquake happens, typically the electricity goes off and sometimes windows are busted out. He says, if it happens in the middle of the night, you have a pair of shoes under your bed that you can quickly grab, and it will allow you to step over the glass, and you also have a flashlight that will navigate you in the darkness. You see, he said, you need to be ready in the event when the earthquake takes place, and so it is. We know the rapture is going to happen, and we need to be prepared. We need to look up, and we need to realize that Jesus Christ is coming back, and so how can we be rapture ready? He says to the Thessalonians, you're going to be taken out in chapter 4, that's the rapture, pre-trib rapture, and then in chapter 5, new topic, the day of the Lord's going to happen. Children of darkness, they're going through the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation where God pours out His wrath. He says, you're not of the children of the darkness, you're the children of the light. And how do you get ready for chapter 4 in the rapture? You need to wake up, you need to clean up, you need to dress up, and you need to look up. And so the first thing is we need to be rapture ready as children of light. The second characteristic of a child of light is they maintain right relationships with others in the church. They maintain right relationships with others in the church. And he mentions two types of relationships that we have in the church here. Number one, our relationship to spiritual leaders. How are spiritual leaders to lead you and how are you to respond to the leadership of the church? Notice, if you will, verse 12 of chapter 5. He says, but we request of you, brethren, that you what? Denigrate those who diligently labor among you. You criticize those who labor among you. You have roasted pastor for lunch every Sunday. No, he says, we request of you that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And notice of spiritual leaders, 
They have charge over you in the Lord. And it says also about spiritual leaders, they give you instruction. And so he basically delineates here the responsibility of spiritual shepherds in the church. Our goal is we give oversight to the flock, we teach the flock, and obviously we labor hard in the ministry. That's the call of spiritual leaders. And you know what? There's a lot of pastors prostituting their calling because they're fleecing the flock. They don't work hard. They're lazy. They don't feed the congregation. And rather than serve the people, they want to be served. Why? Because they have egos the size of Texas. And he's saying, no, that is corrupting spiritual leadership. On the other hand, what does he say of the congregation? Your responsibility in having a right relationship with your leadership is to appreciate those who labor over you, to encourage them and build them up. And then he says at the end of the verse, he says, live in what? harmony with one another. Live in peace with one another. In other words, don't be caught up in constant conflict. Now, this is not to say that you are to give unquestioned obedience to the leadership of the church. There are things that you may not always agree with. There are things you may not always like. There are preferences that you may go, you know what, I wouldn't do it that way. That's fine. You got to pick your battles. If you have something that you're really struggling with, come to me or come to Pastor John or one of the leadership team. We don't want conflict in the church. Now, we may not always agree, but at least you're able to air your opinion. And what this is obviously saying we're not to do is to have a hypercritical spirit because sometimes in the church, people have hypercritical spirits. They want to point out everything that's wrong. And your role is to be an encouragement. Hebrews 13 says, submit to your leaders over you because they're going to give a greater account. I'm going to give a greater account than you because I'm a shepherd. God's going to hold me accountable for teaching and leading. The same with John and the other leaders of this church. And so this is a reciprocal type of ministry in the church. Leaders lead their people, feed their people. The congregation follows and they submit. Now, here's a rule of thumb. If you're in a church, you can't give to that church, you have real problems with their values, and you have real struggles with their leadership, if you can't resolve it, it's time to find another church. But don't go around spreading gossip and slander. Now, make sure you're not the problem, because sometimes Christians are just critical, and you know what they do? They go from one church to the next church to the next church, and what they do is they spread that around, and they have restless spirits. They can't submit to the leadership. Now, the only time we're not to submit is when they ask you to do something unbiblical. And so, he says, leaders, lead, love them, and he says, feed the flock. Your role is to appreciate and encourage. Have you ever seen a geese, uh, a group of geese fly together in a V formation? Usually, there's one at the head leading the pack. And what they do is basically they rotate. When the front geese gets tired, he shifts and another one goes to the front. And there is science to this. This actually has science in aerodynamics because when they fly in this V formation, what it does is it gives lift to them that they would not otherwise have if they did not fly in this V formation. It actually creates an uplift. It gives them 70% more energy to move forward. And you know, whenever the leader's at the front, you know what the geese in the back do? You've probably heard them before when they have flown over a field. What do they do? Ah, ah, ah. They encourage the leader in the front. And so listen, when it comes to the leadership of the church, when you see John on campus, go, John, ah, ah, ah. 
Pastor Mike, ah, ah, ah. And you know what a lot of churches do? They cut down the leader. It's not always easy because you deal with multiple personalities, multiple tastes and preferences. And then if you get a person that is hypercritical, I mean, if they're walking through a meadow field and it's beautiful and the sky is blue, they're the first ones to point out the manure pile. That's just the way they're wired. And so he talks about leadership in the church, having the right relationship. Secondly, he deals with other believers. Not only our relationship to leaders in the church, but now, what is our relationship to other believers? And obviously, he's not being exhaustive here, but he gives several things that we're to do, and this is somewhat preventative maintenance. And let me just say at the outset, are you listening? Say amen. This is not just the role of spiritual leaders in the church. Notice what he says in verse 14, we urge you, brethren admonish. That word means to warn. It means to come alongside someone and warn them. Warn the unruly. These are Christians that are wayward. They're drifting spiritually. They've stopped coming to church. They're maybe getting into things that they shouldn't get into, and you see some red flags. He says, don't ignore them and go, oh, I haven't seen so-and-so. Pick up the phone and call them. Now, you may not know them. I understand sometimes there's got to be a relationship there. And John and I have that responsibility and others on staff. But he says, warn the unruly, people that are getting out of line. In fact, this Greek word means someone like a soldier who has gotten out of his rank, who is not following orders. This is a Christian that is being disobedient. And you know what? I've had to do this over the years. Sometimes it's not comfortable. And you do it always in a spirit of love and humility. But you know what? We got to go to our brothers and sisters in Christ if they've drifted away from God because that's God's method to keep people on the right track. You say, well, what if they don't listen to me? They don't listen, they don't listen, but you have gone to them. In fact, this happened to me yesterday at the prison when we were at that prison that had 900 uh, inmates there. Uh, They were playing softball, and before I got up to preach, I went into the gymnasium because there was air conditioning in there. No, I'm just kidding. Went in there, and I wanted to prepare for the message and review my stuff, and so I'm sitting there, and a bunch of inmates are in there. One of them comes up to me, didn't even know me. He sat down. We got in a conversation. It was clearly a divine appointment. We've all had those before where you've sensed that God orchestrated this meeting, and while I was sitting there, he told me how he got saved, and then he said, God called me to preach. He says, I've known that. But he says, you know, I've been in this sentence. They gave me 20 years. He goes, I was high on crack cocaine. He says, I never killed anybody. He said, I held up a convenience store. He said, they gave me 20 years. He goes, that's not fair. And he was grumbling and complaining, blah, 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 blah. And I said, look, I've never walked a mile in your shoes. I said, but are you doing what God has called you to do in this prison? He said, you know, not really. He says, I'm pulling a Jonah. He said, but I've had two preachers tell me that I'm going to get out soon. I said, great, hold on to those promises if those were words given to you by God. But he said, God hasn't come through yet, and he's very, very impatient. And I said, I understand. I said, but listen, you need to get your act together and start doing what God has called you to do. You see, what I was doing is I was warning him not to get off the wrong path. I said, look, when you get out of here, if your roots are not sunk in the Lord, what's going to happen? You may go back to your life of crime. And so he says here, admonish the unruly. Then in verse 14, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. I love the Greek word here. It means small, sold. Someone who's struggling, they're discouraged, they're melancholy, they're weighed down by life's problems, they're beat up. 
Sometimes their, B, their blood type is B negative. You ever met people like that? And they're weighed down by problems. And he says, encourage them and strengthen them. These are people that are dealing with difficulties in their life, and their personalities may lend to that. He says, don't blow them off. Now, sometimes with these types of people, you have to set boundaries. Why? Because they will suck you dry emotionally. But he says, encourage those people. You're going to have them in the church. How many have ever been in that situation? All of us have, because we get beat up by life's problems and struggles. And so, you want encouragement when you're going through something difficult because you are small-souled? You're discouraged. You want somebody to encourage you. Why hasn't so-and-so picked up the phone? Nobody has reached out to me. Well, I understand that, but let me ask you this. Do you reach out to others who are struggling in their walk? See, sometimes we want everyone to minister to us, but we don't want to minister to other people. So he says, encourage those who are small-souled. And then in verse 14, he says, you got weak people in the church, help the weak. Now, what does he mean here by weak? I think he's talking here, we don't know for sure, but he's talking about people that are not grounded in their faith and they kind of vacillate spiritually. They're spiritual yo-yos. They're up and down. Sometimes you got to rebuke them and sometimes you got to help them because they're weak in their faith. I was reading about a jogger this week in Atlanta and when she was running, she noticed in the fence And I don't know exactly what the fence looked like, but a deer was caught in the fence. And so she stopped running, and she went over, and she kind of tried to untangle the legs, and she let the deer go. Now, if I remember correctly, when she ran around the track, the second time she came back, the deer got stuck again. And so she had to untangle the deer's legs and let the deer go. And you know, there are some believers in the body of Christ that are small-souled, that are weak in their faith, and you know, they're like that deer, they need another believer to come alongside them and let them go and encourage them. You say, Mike, that's hard. Exactly. Verse 14, be patient with everyone. Why? Because people will test us. People are difficult. Sometimes people don't get it. You say, well, how long should I encourage someone? Listen, you got to be led by the Spirit. Sometimes certain people, you got to cut them loose. Why? Because all they want to do is take, 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 and they don't want to change. But we got to bear other people's burdens, and that's why we got to be patient. And you know what helps me with this? I get convicted and I remind myself is God is patient with me. God shows me abundant grace. When I've blown it time and time and time again, and I will continue to blow it time and time again, God is always gracious and merciful and patient and forgiving with me. You know what? That same grace, love, forgiveness, and patience that God has given me, I need to extend to other people. But you know what? We tend to be very greedy. We want it for ourselves, but when other people are struggling, we tend not to give it to them. And so he says, be patient with everyone. And then finally, in relationships to other people, he says in verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. In other words, don't want your pound of flesh. Don't seek vengeance. Don't get on Facebook and say so-and-so and so-and-so without mentioning their name, and everybody knows who you're talking about, but you're verbally assassinating them. He says, see, no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. In other words, return good for evil. He says it's not just for believers. He says for what? All people. In other words, don't have a vindictive vendetta spirit. And I'll tell you what, that's hard, is it not? You understand this if you're married. You know, your spouse says something to you and something rises up and you're just like your mother. That doesn't work. 
You say something you shouldn't say. Or this week I was at uh, TJ Maxx. Parking lot's narrow. I got this big truck. And it was kind of awkward. I wasn't doing anything that I shouldn't have been doing, but this older lady came around the corner and she stopped. I guess she was waiting for me and I had no idea she wanted the parking spot. And she flipped out. And she started cussing under her breath. And I'm thinking, this is an older lady. How could she do that? And I was like, shut up. Don't say anything. You see, we all have those attitudes where we want revenge. You say this, I'm going to attack you back. He says, no, bless when you are cursed. We struggle with this. But you see, these are the relationships he's talking to the Thessalonians in the church. And you know what? You can't do this without being spirit-filled. You got to work at this. You got to cultivate this. Relationships are hard work. They require intentionality. They require you to be filled in the Spirit. Now, some relationships are harder than others, no doubt about that, but you got to be loving and patient. But you know what? If you don't want to get involved in body life, if you don't want to get involved in the church, you'll never do these things. If you want to be a Christian that just comes on Sunday, sings a few songs, give a tip in the offering plate, shake the pastor's hand, and say, Pastor, great sermon. You go home, you're not involved. Listen, you'll never do this. That's why God wants the body of Christ involved. And so, what are the characteristics of a child of light? They prepare for the rapture, <clears throat> they maintain a right relationship with other believers, and then finally for this morning, they pursue spiritual disciplines or spiritual growth. Now, what he's going to do here is he's going to give us several commands, kind of in a military fashion. He gives them in a staccato fashion, very brief. They're commands in the Greek and we all know them, they are loaded, they are convicting, but they are so essential for our spiritual discipline and growth. The first one, he says, in terms of pursuing spiritual disciplines, is we need to rejoice continually. Look what he says in verse 16. Rejoice what? Say it out loud. Always. You say, Mike, is rejoicing an emotion or a choice? It's both. When you're going through a difficult situation or a difficult circumstance, do you always feel like rejoicing? I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like rejoicing when I'm going through something difficult. And notice what he says here, rejoice continually, not just when things are going good in your life, but when you are in the pit. Paul says, rejoice. By the way, rejoicing is a perspective. It is a choice. When I wake up in the morning, I choose my attitude. There are times where I have to rebuke myself, just like the psalmist said. The psalmist said, soul he says, take thy ease in God. He says, soul, rejoice in the Lord. You've got to sometimes be deliberate and say, enough of this whining and complaining. You've got to grab the bull by the horns because sometimes you don't feel right. You've got to rejoice in the pit. I read this week about a man who fell into a pit and he couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you in the pit. An objective person came along and said, you know, it's logical that anyone would fall in that pit. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think that you're in the pit, but you're really not. A Pharisee came along and said, you know what? Only bad people fall into the pit. A mathematician calculated how he fell into the pit. A news reporter wanted the exclusive story on the pit. A fundamentalist said, you know what? You deserve that pit. Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. A geologist said, 
Do you appreciate the rock strata that is in the pit? A scientist calculated the pressure necessary to get him out of the pit. The county inspector asked him if he had a permit to dig the pit. The county tax assessor came along and figured out the taxes on the pit. A professor came and lectured him on the elementary principles of the pit. A wealth and health teacher said, you just need to confess that you are not in that pit. And the Apostle Paul said, rejoice in the pit. We need to give thanks to God, and that's not always easy to do. I think we all fail in that area. A second thing we need to do to pursue spiritual disciplines and growth, not only rejoice continually, but pray regularly. Verse 17, he says, pray without what? Ceasing. This doesn't mean you walk around in a constant state of prayer, praying out loud. The word is used of a hacking cough. (coughs) 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 You know how that goes. You feel the tickle in your throat. You know when you were first married and your spouse is coughing like that? When you're first married, you say, sweetheart, what can I do to, can I get you some cough syrup? Then 20 years later, you say, could you please go in the other room? Yeah, some of you understand, don't you? But we need to be sensitive. Praying continually means we have an attitude of prayer. Not only set times of prayer, but we pray throughout the day. We're talking to God. It's like a hacking cough. In fact, when Steve flew me to Louisville, Kentucky a couple days ago, this, the ride was pretty smooth there. We were about 5,000 feet up. This is a single-engine uh, jet here. And, uh, but, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm literally up 5,000 feet in this little tin box with the little propeller. If that propeller stopped, we would drop like a rock. And then I thought to myself, what if Steve had a heart attack? What would I do? I was like, so I said, I'm not thinking about all this. So that was smooth there. On the way back, we get up to about 5,000. We're talking to a lot of the air traffic control. In fact, I learned when you switch from one state to another, you have to punch in a code because they have another air traffic controller there who sees everything. Well, he had two tablets in his plane, and he said to me, because I had the thing on, he said, notice this band of rain right here, and there's some difficult cells here, and see the clouds up ahead. He said, we're going to have to climb above those clouds. He said, we're going to have to go from 5,000 to 10,000. I was like, ooh. So he started to climb. And I could tell Steve was getting nervous because he said it. I said, well, can't you just fly through the clouds? He said, no, too much turbulence. He says, we got to get above them. So he's getting nervous. And I started talking to him. He goes, shut up. I got to focus. And so I'm sitting there. And you know what the whole time I was doing? I was praying without ceasing. I was saying, Lord, I said, you know, I have to preach tomorrow. You know, I have to preach. You've been in those situations before. You see, that's praying without ceasing. Thankfully, Steve did a great job of navigating us through, and we were able to lower the plane. So he says, rejoice continually, pray regularly. The third thing you're going to do if you're going to cultivate spiritual growth or disciplines is give thanks regardless. Notice, if you will, verse 18. In everything, give what? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now listen, I'm not saying that we're thankful for everything that happens to us. If on my way to a wedding and I get a flat tire and I got to change that tire or wait for AAA to come, I'm not thankful for the flat tire, but what I am thankful for is God will use that circumstance in order to teach me what? Patience. 
I don't give thanks for everything, but I give thanks in everything. And that is a deliberate choice. If you have a child that's wandered from God, you thank the Lord that he has heard your prayers and that he is working. If you don't like your job and it's unfulfilling, you thank the Lord that you have a job that is able to provide for your needs. If you don't like your marriage and you're struggling in your marriage, you thank the Lord that he's building character. Am I saying this is easy? Not at all. But it is a choice. It's not always an emotion. Rejoicing and giving thanks is I do that because I know God is sovereign and he's working all things together for my good. You see, that's why I can make a choice to do that. You guys remember George Mueller? George Mueller was one of those guys that started orphanages in England back in the 1800s. And he had one rule. I will not ask anybody for money. He said, God, if you're in this ministry, you will supply all the food for all the orphans, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, at the end of his life, do you know how many orphanages he had started? 30. One day, the story said, he got to the table in the morning, and he had all the orphan kids in one of their houses there, and there was no food in the cupboard, nothing to drink, no milk. So he gathered all the orphans, and he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give thanks to God right now for his provision. He could have said, God, where are you? Blah, 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 blah. He said, we're going to give thanks. So they grabbed hands and they began to thank the Lord for his provision. As soon as he said amen, he opened the door and there was a baker. And he said, you know what? Last night I got up early, three o'clock in the morning, and I felt impressed that I needed to bake some bread and bring it to you. And he goes, here, I wanted to deliver it to you. Do you need it? He said, absolutely, brought it in, and then right behind him, there was a milk truck that had broken down right in front of his house. The man came to him and said, we can't use this milk anymore, it'll spoil, do you want the milk? You see, he gave thanks, why? God provided, and sometimes we got to give thanks in advance for what we're trusting God to do. Not always what is happening now, but God, I want to thank you in Jesus' name that you are going to rescue me. couple more here as we wind down. Number four, avoid quenching the spirit. He says in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. What does that mean? It means to put out the spirit's fire. What happens is we grieve the spirit. We grieve the spirit when we sin on a regular basis. And listen, we sin, but I think here he's talking about rebellion. When I rebel and I don't want to serve the Lord, I don't want to get involved, I don't want to put Jesus first, what happens is I grieve the Spirit, grieve the Spirit, and then eventually I quench the Spirit. What does that mean? I put out His fire. He can't work in my life like I want Him to work. You know with airplanes? When I've flown on commercial jets, I'll look out the window and I notice the wings. You'll notice what when the plane tries to get to its altitude, on the wing they have some flaps, and they turn the flaps under. You know what that does? When the, when the wind goes over the plane and it goes over the wing, it coasts across it and it gives it lift when they turn those flaps down. But have you noticed whenever a plane begins to land on the runway, as soon as it lands, it's going over 100 miles an hour, what do the flaps do? They come up. The flaps will come up and what happens is the air hits the flaps and it creates resistance in order to slow the plane down. And you know what happens when you and I quench the spirit? We put the flaps up. Get involved in ministry. I know the Lord's telling me. 
The Lord is telling me to reconcile with my spouse. I need to forgive that person. I need to do this. And you know what? When we keep going, not like Karate Kid, you know, wax on, wax off. It's not like that. It's what happens is we quench what? The spirit. Well, finally, he gives one other thing we need to do if we're to cultivate spiritual growth or the disciplines. Evaluate those who share God's word by using the word of God. He says in verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. Verse 21, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, what they did in the early church was they gave prophetic words. What's a prophetic word? When the Spirit brings something to someone's mind spontaneously, and they speak it to the congregation. It was a prophecy. It was either forthtelling or foretelling, predicting the future. And he's saying, when you hear a prophecy, don't quench the Spirit and say, we're not doing that. He says, rather, examine the prophecy carefully, evaluate it. If it's good, receive it. He says, if it's bad, he says, reject it. So you know how we evaluate prophecies in the church today when you hear preachers on television? We have the Word of God. We take the Word of God, we listen to prophecies. Now listen carefully. Prophecies are not on the same par as the Bible. Anybody who tells you or gives you a word of prophecy, if it's inconsistent with the Bible, it's not of God. He says reject it. Abstain from every form of evil. If it's consistent with the Word of God, then you've got to decide, all right, Lord, is this you? I had a girl come up to me one time when I was in college. She said, the Lord gave me a word that you and I are to be married. I said, until the Lord gives me that word, we ain't getting married. You got to evaluate. Sometimes it doesn't contradict the Bible, but he says, evaluate it. So how are we going to be ready as children of the light? What are the, what are the characteristics of a child of light? Number one, they are prepared for the what? The rapture. Number two, they maintain right biblical relationships with others in the church. And then finally, they cultivate the spiritual disciplines in order to grow. What are the spiritual disciplines that he mentioned? Rejoice continually, pray regularly, give thanks regardless, avoid quenching the spirit, and evaluate those who share God's word by using the word of God. Finally, I'll read the prayer to you and we'll close. He says in verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. In other words, may God not only sanctify you in this life through spiritual growth, becoming more like Christ, but may he sanctify you when you get to heaven. He says, may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying for the Thessalonians and for you and I that God will complete his plan of salvation. Will God complete it? Verse 24, faithful is he who calls you. He also will what? Bring it to pass. God is going to fulfill his promise and bring us to glory. He says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so, do you manifest these characteristics of a child of the light? See, children reflect their father. And if you and I are children of God, we should reflect our father, our heavenly father. 
Be rapture ready. Cultivate relationships in the church biblically. And then finally, cultivate those disciplines of the Spirit in order to grow. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, it was a lot of information, but I just pray that you would continue to speak to all of us in these areas. God, we, we humbly come, I know I do, Lord, giving thanks always, rejoice always. Father, we realize that it's not always an easy command to obey. Forgive us. And this morning, you'll never remember all this stuff, but what did God speak to you about this morning? There was one or two things that God brought to your mind during this message. Either it was a reminder and an encouragement to you, or God convicted you about something. Are you willing to deal with what the Spirit brought to your mind, or are you going to put the flap up and quench the Spirit? Father, I pray that all of us would be submissive to the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. As we go out this morning, we go out to the mission field. Help us to have our priorities ordered and not to be asleep spiritually. In Jesus' name.